Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Subtler than more obvious indicators of death, such as heartbeat and respiration, neurological criteria for determining death remain a controversial subject among Catholics, 16 years after Pope St. John Paul II approved their use. Although the Catholic Church has always affirmed that the determination of death belongs to medical professionals, not theologians, the lack of a direct corollary between the languages of metaphysics and medical science complicates the application of church teaching on the integrative function of the soul that takes place in the brain. We are joined today by Dr. Edward Furt, an ethicist at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, who will explain some of the scientific, metaphysical, and social implications of brain death. Well, Ted, thank you for being on the program. Phil, thank you for having me. Very much happy to be here. Let's begin uh, with just a simple description of brain death. Well, uh, it's uh, the death of the entire brain. So upper, middle, and brain stem, all three parts simply no longer functioning and uh, no longer any blood flow moving through the brain. Uh, that's the simple definition of it, and it's the one that uh, John Paul II mentions in his uh, August 2000 statement on neurological criteria. Now, the means for determining brain death uh, in a clinical setting is actually very complicated. I have a, a listing here of the procedures to be taken, and it runs five pages. So uh, it's a the process for determining death that has both, you might say, a theoretical description, that is entire brain death, uh, that is the loss of the integrating function of the body, and then in a practical setting, various uh, rules that have to be uh, followed by the physicians. And ideally, they do them twice and, and uh, need to be very certain that it's an accurate diagnosis. Now, these tests that the doctors do, are they... Um observations? Are they lab tests? What what level of um, detail, I guess, are, do they go into? Well, some of them are pretty straightforward and could be done by physicians uh, almost anywhere with basic tools. Some of them are very advanced and, and measure CO2 levels and such things. But uh, one of the simpler uh, methods is just looking into the eye with uh, a light and trying to get some kind of reaction from the from the eyeballs. Uh, there's also the application of uh, pressure to the fingernails, etc., or a cold uh, on the ear. These things are all designed to provoke some kind of a reaction that can be measured by uh, an electroencephalograph that is uh, looking for any kind of brain activity. Uh, so those are the basic elements. Um, uh, they do, depending on the area of the world in which this is being done, there are more advanced techniques as well. One of the other elements here is that it should be done twice, uh, just to make sure that the first uh, diagnosis was accurate. And another very practical aspect is that uh, you have to eliminate cases that 
uh, appear to be brain death, um, and this is why it's done twice, uh, someone who's fallen into very cold water, for example, will uh, can uh, imitate brain death by showing no uh, brain function. And also people who are um, under the influence of some kind of heavy drug or narcotic can also uh, look similar to brain uh, death cases. How obvious is the distinction between brain death and, say, a minimally conscious state such as PVS? Well, uh, they're fairly obvious um, if the test is properly done. Uh, essentially, the difference is between a person with no brain activity at all and somebody with partial brain activity. So those should register very clearly uh, on the uh, you know the, the the devices measuring for for brain uh, brain function. So uh, it should be very clear. Now the fact is that many physicians throw the word brain death around or neurological criteria um, in a way that is not very accurate. I'm not sure why they do this, but it could be because they're maybe thinking they're the, the family members don't need to hear a lot of details uh, about the person who is uh, in a, a deeply unconscious state, and uh, they will just use the word brain death without having done any of the tests or as a kind of a catch-all for hopeless cases. So that's something we see uh, fairly often, and it does breed confusion. But in terms of your question, uh, the difference between no brain function and even a minor amount of brain function is very clear on the electroencephalograph or other devices that are used to measure it. So now that we've gone through and talked a little bit about what specifically it is, why is this concept important uh, for the Catholic philosophical tradition? Well, let me say first of all um, that it's uh, it's remained somewhat controversial within uh, Catholic circles, um, and there, it, it, because of a certain philosophical debate that uh, is taking place about what constitutes true death. It might be helpful, first of all, to contrast brain death, which with the more ordinary means of determining death, which is loss of heartbeat and respiration. Now, in the, that case, it's, it's very obvious that the individual is, is dead. I mean, they're no longer moving. There's no um, any function in the body whatsoever. But the brain death person um, state, uh, state of death is quite different because here you will have a functioning heart. It is actually beating. Uh, these individuals, in effect, uh, are, are dead bodies with uh, heartbeat and circulation, but it is sustained through the use of a ventilator. And as soon as the ventilator is removed, the uh, remainder of the life in the body shows the same signs as you would find in a, in a case of cardiac arrest. I mean, uh, the patient... Uh, the patient's body no longer has any f uh, breathing function or heart uh, function. And there has never been a case in which a ventilator has been removed and there's been any kind of recovery. It's, it's always 
been the same result, uh, the individual uh, body ceases to function uh, in, in these cases. So some are uncomfortable with that, and it's understandable. I mean, it is quite different from what we typically expect when we speak of death. But the whole uh, idea of brain death arose from rather um, peculiar circumstances going back to the oh, uh, 1960s and 70s where the law uh, recognized only cardiac death as true death. But we had patients who were actually uh, rotting in their hospital beds. Uh, the smell of death was all around them because the ventilator was keeping their bodies in some semi-state of, of life, not completely corrupted yet, and yet they couldn't be declared dead because, in fact, they had a heartbeat. So the Harvard uh, committee, ad hoc committee, in 1968, issued the first set of guidelines for uh, death by de um, neurological determination. And uh, these uh, were adopted, and the problem of um, you know, rotting corpses uh, still alive, supposedly, was solved both medically and I guess you could say legally as well. It became a recognized standard. So, but uh, philosophically, uh, some would say that no, you, you have to have the entire body dead and cardiac arrest. And others, uh, including the Catholic Church, would say no, uh, the medical community is correct. And uh, whole brain death, all three parts of the brain, upper, middle, and brain stem, that constitutes true death. Now, you mentioned the ad hoc committee. Uh, didn't Pius Twelfth address this issue a decade earlier? He did, yes. He had, there's a, a document of his um, that was, it's called the, the Prolongation of Life, is typically how it's titled, from 1957. It's November... Let me just check that. I think it's November, yes, 24th, 1957, where he uh, he addressed questions that were very similar to the brain death questions because these cases had already begun to assert themselves uh, back in the 1950s. And he first of all said, and this is something very important uh, for uh, you know the, the, our church in, in general that uh, the determination of death doesn't belong to the church. This is not our, our role, or the Catholic Church's role, or the papacy's role. Uh, medical doctors make this determination. And the uh, Catholic Church has always been you know, very open to the life of reason and the progress of the sciences. And so we recognize the, uh, the expertise of the physicians, and it's their responsibility to tell us when a person has died and uh, to issue a death certificate. So uh, he was, he, Pius XII was asked certain questions about those who uh, are in a deeply unconscious state, as it was originally put, and on a ventilator. And uh, he said, well, you know, it's, it's up to the medical community to decide. Uh, but he did say we can distinguish between, and this is a very important uh, uh, philosophical distinction between the life of the person as a whole and the life of the organs and tissues. 
And with that distinction in hand, the brain death criteria make a lot of sense to the Catholic mind. Because you can have the death of the person, that is, when the brain is completely non-functioning, and yet still have some life in the organs because it's a, a remnant of, uh, of the previous life that was there when the person and the soul was present in the body. So yes, uh, he played a, a key role, and he's actually cited in the 1968 Ad Hoc Committee's report on uh, the determination of death by uh, neurological criteria. They didn't call it that at, time, at the time, but that's essentially what the Harvard Committee was doing. You mentioned the death of the brain as important for the presence of the person in the body. Why is the brain more important in this aspect than, say, some of the other organs? Why, why is it that when the brain dies, uh, this distinction is made? Yeah, that's an excellent question, uh, and it, it takes us into more philosophical territory. Uh, you know, we are body-soul composites, and this is a, a doctrine of the Catholic faith that comes down to us from our great philosophical tradition. Uh, you know, people have a kind of a mystical idea of what the soul is, but in fact, uh, your own mind is the best representation that we have of what the soul is. I mean, the mind is a spiritual phenomenon. It's readily apparent through introspection. Just have to look inward and, and, and see that these are my thoughts that I'm having. And this is, this is the soul uh, for human beings. We are rational souls, unlike the rest of the animal and plant kingdom, which doesn't have the higher faculties of reason and will. And we can directly perceive them in their spiritual quality. Now, of course, the brain is the material counterpart of the spiritual aspect of the soul. And the soul pervades the entire body. It's not just in the brain. But it's also obvious that the brain is the locus, the principal locus for the soul in its rational function. And also it's obvious that the brain is the source of the central nervous system through which the whole body is controlled and organized. So the soul has a, a kind of an integrative uh, function that takes place through the brain and is expressed by the presence of, of mind. Now the mind uh, and the soul separate from the body at death. And so once the matter, the material basis for the soul as a rational entity is lost, uh, then it can no longer exist in uh, dead brain matter. So it, it uh, departs from the body. The soul continues to exist after death and continues to be conscious in some sense because it's a spiritual entity and doesn't rely on the body for its own existence. Um, and so that's why the, the brain is thought to be uh, of particular importance when it comes to... Um, understanding the place of the soul within the body. Now, you mentioned that this is a very a highly philosophical subject. Can you talk a little bit about how the description of death in Catholic philosophical and moral teaching does not always have a precise counterpart 
in the language of medical science? And does this help or hinder uh, this determination of death? Yes, very good. Well, uh, I can say right off the bat, it, it hinders. It's a bit of a problem uh, because uh, we live in an age of materialism as a philosophical outlook. And the scientific community, which has, of course, as it should, a strong influence on the medical community, brings this materialistic philosophy uh, to the physician, and the physician sometimes brings it to the bedside. So uh, there's a tendency within the medical community to say, you know, if if this uh, that the the description, the physical description of the person is the whole description of the person. So when someone looks at the body of somebody in a deeply unconscious state, they will say, well, it's unlikely that this person has much in the way of consciousness anymore because uh, there's so little uh, function in the brain. Uh, so there's a tendency to say, well, if he has the, this little function, obviously he's not aware of anything and he's not going to feel any pain because you know, he's, he's so deeply unconscious. But that is not really the Catholic view of things. The mind, as Thomas Aquinas says in his Summa, has its own active existence given to it by God. So the mind is always present within the body in some complete sense. It's unable to exercise its function in a full way because the matter is diminished to a significant degree in patients who are suffering from some level of unconsciousness. But the spiritual soul is still there, in a, again, in a holistic sense. Uh, and I think the medical community doesn't look at it that way. They almost look at the the person as a, a matter of degrees. You've got a 100% person who's walking around, and then you've got a person in a deep coma who is a 10% person, uh, and so has only maybe a 10% value, or we only have to be minimally concerned about experience of pain and the like. So what happens, Phil, is that Physicians tend to underestimate the consciousness of their patients. We saw this very dramatically in the case of PVS, the persistent vegetative state. Uh, these patients were dismissed. Uh, they're not aware of anything. Uh, I think they're defined as unaware of themselves and their environment. Uh, but that's simply... I mean, how can you know that somebody is unaware of himself? It's a pretty dramatic claim. The only way you can make the claim is if you think we are nothing more than matter. And they have done studies more recently on persistent vegetative patients. And it turns out that they, at least some of them, are able to follow directions. Uh, they can communicate by moving their eyes. There's a, one of the first cases was a woman who was a tennis player. And they did some tests saying, okay, now imagine you're playing tennis. And the areas of the brain connected to sports began to fire up. And they said, well, wow, she's more conscious than we realize. So the materialism, I think, causes the medical community to underestimate uh, the, uh, the integrity that remains in their patients and the level of consciousness that is still within them. And that is a serious problem. But here we're talking about those who fall short of true brain death, 
Brain death is the final step, and once you've reached that, then there's no consciousness. But prior to that, they have this degree sense of consciousness, 10%, 50%, 100%, which I think is false. So could you say that the problem is one of looking at death as a process as opposed to an event? Well, uh, I think that the materialist outlook also uh, has an impact on this area. Um, most mm, scientists, I suppose, I'm not sure about physicians who are in a somewhat different situation, but most scientists would probably deny that the soul survives death. And so uh, a person who undergoes the process of dying is slowly, I guess you'd say, um, disappearing or vanishing. And so they have 10% life left, 6%, 2%, 0%. They've kind of gone. They no longer exist at all. Uh, but in Catholic teaching, although death is a process that's observed by the physician from the outside, you know, from external signs, if from the state of the subject, the person who's dying, this person never really uh, ceases to exist, but simply separates from the body. So it, and that happens at a moment. The, there's a, a point when the soul leaves the body. So it's a, it's a definite point in time. Now the physician can't see that. So he sees just a process. But uh, the Catholic teaching is because death is a separation of the soul from the body, it happens at a moment, and then the physician reports later on, after it's happened, that it has happened. He can't actually see the separation of the soul from the body. So now that we've talked a lot about the materialist point of view, let's jump over to the other side of the spectrum. And so it would seem like the easy response to counter this materialism is an even more stringent definition of death than brain death. Can you go into some of the problems that arise from people who don't accept brain death as an actual determiner of death? Well, here I think we have to be somewhat... Um... Uh, open to their concerns. I mean, I, I mean, I don't think anyone has to, any Catholic, for example, has to accept brain death. Uh, I think the way to put it is to say that, as John Paul II did in his August 2000 address, uh, physicians and patients may use the neurological criteria for the determination of death. That's acceptable within the Catholic faith. Uh, but people who have strong doubts about this and are uncertain, uh, you know, they can say, hey, I'm just not comfortable with this. I, I, my loved ones, to my mind, appears to be still living, and I don't want you to take the ventilator off. I, I think we can appreciate that and, and permit that to happen without saying they're doing something wrong. I mean, uh, but on the other hand, I don't think it's right for anyone to say to a Catholic who accepts the brain death criteria, oh, you're doing something terrible. You shouldn't accept that because I have doubts about what you're doing. 
and I think it's wrong. Well, I mean, uh, the Church has spoken on this issue, and uh, again, Catholics are free to make use of brain death criteria. They should be very careful that the physicians are doing the determination accurately, and there's not this throwing around of the word brain death as a kind of catch-all for various different types of uh, states, both cognitive and completely lacking in cognition. But they sh- again, so I think we have to be open-minded to the, toward those who, who reject it and say they have doubts, let them have their doubts and, and take the path that they think is best. But the church also speaks of the resurrection of the body, and the, the body is going to be reunited with the soul at, uh, at a future point. And I, I would uh, invite uh, the listeners to, to look at uh, Thomas Aquinas' writings in this area and the, and the church's writings generally about the various attributes of the body as it's resurrected. It's, it's uh, you know, a body that's perfected, that's, um, that has a spiritual quality to it. It's going to be quite different from the body that we have today. And it, again, points to the afterlife as the realm of the spirit, where the mind continues on and, and has a body which has, as Aquinas uh, says, four additional perfections in it, which glorify it. And that's it's a wonderful thing to reflect on. Well, excellent. Thank you very much, uh, Ted, for taking the time to talk with us. Okay, Phil, thank you for having me. Glad to do it. For more information about brain death and other end-of-life issues, or to find answers to other bioethical questions, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Phil Cerrone. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.